This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. It's not every day that a 16-year-old revolutionizes spinal surgery, but Cherry Creek High School's Krithik Ramesh may have done just that. Ramesh won the top prize at Intel's International Science and Engineering Fair for developing augmented reality goggles meant to help orthopedic surgeons. And the idea behind the goggles came from a surprising place, the video game Just Dance. After trying to master Shakira's hips don't lie on the game, Ramesh started to think about how the spine moves a lot. We visited Krithik Ramesh in his home in Greenwood Village to learn about his project and so that he could give me some dancing pointers. So essentially the way that this works is that it'll show like the actual dance on the screen, like what you're supposed to follow. And then you essentially try to replicate the motion. Okay. So like this is the motion capture system. So there's a video up here and it can see me dancing and it's yeah. going to judge how well I mimic whatever's yeah. showing me on the screen. Exactly. So you just literally follow along. So do you already have this dance totally memorized? Well, I, I used to. <laughs> I think for finals I forgot a little bit, but like this is my moment of catharsis. <laughs> So is this your song, or is there, there are others that you're super scared on also? Well, I've actually mega started some of the other songs, but like this was honestly the hardest song, so it had the most appreciation for it. So I get to feel a little better about myself for this one being hard? Yeah, this one's pretty hard. I'm still struggling. You seem to be crushing it. <laughs> Off the bat, you're pretty good. No fighting, no fighting. Yeah, good hey, go team! Let's go! <laughs> oh, how did I do? Well, well, we're about to sign up. Okay, so not as well as you. Close. You were just under a thousand point deficit. <laughs> okay. After some water and a moment to catch our breath, we sat down in Ramesh's room to talk about his real passion, science, and the goggles he invented for orthopedic surgeons. Essentially, the way that these work is the best I could explain it is like having an Iron Man mask because it shows up all sorts of different information that would be pertinent to you. And specifically, what it does is overlay a three-dimensional reconstruction of an MRI or CT scan of a spine onto a patient. So you can see how their spine is supposed to look after the surgery and how it looks right now. So that's why it looks like goggles. If we put those on, you're still going to be able to see the patient. You're just also going to see the program that you've designed. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, so connect the dots. How does Just Dance relate to this program and these this augmented reality? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's definitely a bit of like mental gymnastics that goes on there. But essentially what happened was that I was playing Shakira's hips, don't lie, as you do. And... Um, <laughs> I also like to read a lot of like medical journals and stuff like that, and I was reading specifically from something called the University of Minnesota's Department of Orthopedic Surgery, where they found that pedicle screw placement, which are the screws that actually go into your spine, the accuracy for that was only about 76% with the fluoroscope, which is like a pretty alarming number and considering... what's the fluoroscope? Yeah. So the fluoroscope is like the navigation system that we currently use to look inside a spine. And that's what I've tried to eliminate because it's a lifetime x-ray. So it has significant physiological repercussions as in like patients are productive coughing and vomiting afterwards or even acute vertebral disc degeneration. So to sort of like counteract these, I try to eliminate it. So like when I read about that fluoroscope, I was like, hmm, how can we eliminate this? I was just wondering, like, what if I apply, like, the motion capture system that works on the Kinect and try to apply that to radiology so then you can predict, like, 
biomechanics based off of a stationary image. So looking at radiology not as a static image, but more dynamically. So tell me more about what you learned while you were playing Hips Don't Lie. Were you purposefully looking up how it works to get a better score? Definitely, yeah. So I actually struggled a lot with that song. It's just a really hard song. And essentially what happened is that I was trying to figure out how the motion capture system worked for like certain parts so that I could figure out how to better move to get my score working, <laughs> you know, like instead of actually just trying to learn the song. And ultimately that allowed me to see that it predicts based off of like certain points in time. So if you can predict a spine based off a certain point in time or radiology image with like artificial systems force, like forces applied on them, how they would behave just like how you move to account for an image to play a song, then maybe those two are correlated. And have you tested this idea with any surgeons? So I worked with medical professionals afterwards to see how viable it was. And I, like, once the development was completed, I made sure that I reached out to radiologists and neurosurgeons and then gave them, like, sample test cases to try and see how close the actual results of the measured value from, like, an actual radiology device right now versus what my algorithm predicted. And then that allowed me to figure out that my algorithm was 98.6% anatomically accurate and 1.33 millimeters in precision. And how do you account for every patient being a totally different person with different spinal structure and different characteristics? Yeah, that's a great question. So accounting for patient morphology was actually like the biggest part of my project. Specifically, I had a data set of 2,000 images from um, a resource called SpineWeb. And the way that it worked is that I could account for various epigenetic congenital factors, age. Women, since they have a larger pelvis end up having slightly different lower uh, lumbar geometry um, ages. So when you're younger, you have more bones actually, or like it's softer tissue. When you're older, the, the bones start to fuse together. So accounting for all of these morphological changes was part of the machine learning algorithm. But once it did, it could account for any future patients and improve along the way. Is this your first invention? No. I've been very fortunate enough to have parents that have, like, bankrolled me through all my, like, crazy stuff. Because um, seventh grade is when it actually started, right? So uh, actually even before that. But seventh grade was the most memorable. So fifth grade, we had something called Invention Convention at my school. And I built these things called, like, solar-powered blinds so that you could put solar panels on blinds and then it would, like, take in energy and then you could use them. Seventh grade was when I actually got really interested in, like, engineering and all of that stuff. So... I reached out to every single like wind tunnel laboratory near me and like none of them responded because I was trying to predict like the turbulence structures and uh, the lift ratios on wingtips because like for Boeing, airplanes? yeah, like Boeing released like a new wingtip for airplanes. And I was like, that's really cool. And I didn't get that. So I just ended up building my own wind tunnel. My parents, Where? Yeah, it's actually still downstairs in my garage. I still have it. But, like, I went around Home Depot and, like, a bunch of RC shops, like, getting all the parts for it. And once I finally did, I had, like, a wind tunnel to test all this stuff. So, like, I've been tinkering for a while. This is just, like, the amalgamation of all that knowledge. What was the competition like? Tell me about that part of this. Oh, yeah. The competition is surreal. It's not like you go to judging right off the bat. There's so many cool little things that they have for all the finalists just to get us interested in STEM. And the first day, we have something called a pin exchange where you get to exchange pins with other kids from all over the world. And it's honestly some of the coolest stuff because I got to meet a kid from Azerbaijan, which is like a very not super well-known place. But they have some really cool stuff and culture. And uh, Peru gave me like a llama pin. 
and then there's like mixers so that we can like you know party a little bit it's like a great concert for nerds as i like to put it <laughs> and how did it feel when you found out you won the gordon e moore award in seventy five thousand dollars? <laughs> it was incredibly surreal like i remember i still remember like my parents used to show me Jack and Draco, which was another Gordon E. Moore winner, had won it. He was on CBS this morning, and it was, like, so surreal. And I was like, this is, like, the pinnacle of, like, scientific achievement, pre-collegiately, obviously. And, like, it was incredible to see the confetti fall on me. It's always been a dream, but I never thought it'd actually be a reality. And what are you going to do with the money? (laughs) Definitely college. (laughs) Definitely college. 16-year-old Krithik Ramesh of Greenwood Village has a dream wall in his room, a wall where he's put up flags of colleges he wants to attend. Stanford is top of the list. Flashbangs are a military tool, a stun grenade that makes loud noise and light. John Chapman of Denver used them in the Marines. Now he's out of the service, he's using his experience to make a better one. His company is getting some help from a business incubator just for veterans, Bunker Labs. Turning soldiers into entrepreneurs is the focus of today's Disruptors, our ongoing series about startups in Colorado. Veteran John Chapman of Liberty Dynamics joins us now. Also with us, Hark Harold, the regional director for Bunker Labs. Welcome to you both. Thank you. We'll get to the flashbangs in a minute, but first, let's talk about how the about the veterans and their contribution to the U.S. economy. Hark, how much of an impact do veterans have? Uh, veterans have a huge impact on the the economies. Uh, Here in Denver, in fact, since May of 16, when we really started focusing on veteran entrepreneurship, uh, companies that have been helped by Bunker Labs have raised over a million and a half in capital and started 23, created 23 jobs, 12 of those for military veterans and military spouses. That's just here in Denver in the past three years. And why do vets in particular need your help? Uh, Veterans 50% of the veterans who leave active duty do it someplace other than where they entered. So they don't have a network where they grew up in that area, most of them. Uh, So Bunker Labs exists to inspire, equip, and connect military veterans and military spouse entrepreneurs to the larger ecosystem. And those connections are key to success. And part of it's providing that network that you might have if you'd lived in a place for a long time. Absolutely. We want to integrate into the larger ecosystem, which is really one of the amazing things with Denver, is how well Denver has open arms for entrepreneurs of all branches, of all services, um, of all types. And John, sometimes we think of good soldiers as people who follow orders, but maybe thinking outside the box is not as well rewarded. You've served for four years in the Marines and in the Middle East. How did your service prepare you to run a business? So first off, thanks for having me. In the Marines, uh, you are taught to be self-thinking, self-reliant. You know, In these environments where you have your mission, you have your directive from higher command, nothing always goes as planned. You have to be able to think on your feet. You have to be able to react to the real-world situations, implement a plan, execute the plan and move forward with still keeping that mission and objective as in your crosshairs to complete. And tell us about your product. First, explain what a flashbang is used for. 
All right, so a, a flashbang or a noise flash diversionary device. Um, it was developed in the, the 1970s by British SAS. It is utilized to create a tactical distraction in an unknown situation, allowing operators, officers to come in and pacify a situation without having to discharge a firearm. Current technology achieves this tactical advantage. However, collateral damage by the way of smoke, fire, or injury to officers or civilians is a byproduct of current technology. And we have solved those issues while still achieving the same physiological effects um, that our men and women need to protect themselves, to protect the innocent. And so you saw some of those flaws. What made you think I can build a better one? So this this goes back to, you know, something that's been instilled from me being in the military is there's there's no problem that can't be solved with a, a little bit of grit, a little bit of outside the box thinking and uh, um, the ability to implement a plan and leverage networks that I've created um, gave me the opportunity to, to really sink my teeth into this and build something better. And how is your device better? It is, I mean, from the top down, we truly have um, solved the issues of what current technology has failed to um, implement over the the last 40 years of their usage. So we have a digital fuse, um, which allows for zero time deviation, which might not sound like a big deal, but when you're doing a surgical entry into an unknown situation, a deviation of a few seconds makes a big difference. So a digital fuse allows this device to go off every single time when it is supposed to. The the explosive um, nature of current technology does catch buildings on fire. Um, our device has a low thermal signature, so you can use this in a wider variety of circumstances, giving that tactical advantage to, to the men and women in uniform. We have a, a binary energetic material. Um, this means that we have broken down flash powder into a binary state, which is why this is important. So if you're a, a soldier or if you're a police officer and you have this on your person and it takes fragmentation or it takes a bullet or if you're in a rollover in an MRAP in, in Iraq, this thing is not going to sympathetically detonate. Um, it's not going to create a already bad situation and make it worse. So there's a lot of safety involved here. Hark, Liberty Dynamic is one of the companies in your business incubator, which you call Veterans and Residents. This is a program you piloted in Denver. What does it offer? Yeah, so the, the We Work Veterans and Residents program powered by Bunker Labs is a six-month uh, incubator program where the participants get a co-working space as well as we take them through a program to help them derive and develop their business. It's uh, up to 10 military veterans and or spouses at a time per city. We're currently located in 15 cities across the U.S. We'll be in 25 within the next two years. And, uh, yeah, piloted here in Denver in May of 2016, so three years ago as a matter of fact. And that's important that you're working with military spouses. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so all of our programs are open to military veterans and military spouses. Uh, spouses have a hard time sometimes with careers because of the constant moving from location to location. But if they can start their own business that's portable, it really helps with their ability to succeed and to contribute to the overall economic development of the country. So John's product was inspired by his military work, but vets and military spouses start businesses of all kinds. What are some of the other businesses working with Bunker Labs? Yeah, so, and again, just here, so Bunker Labs is national, but just here in Denver, uh, we have uh, Sockeye Software, which is going to disrupt the gaming industry. Uh, we have some digital media marketing, uh, leadership development firms, Convergent Impact, uh, Invictus, which is a was started by two soldiers who were uh, 
experienced uh, PTSD and traumatic brain injury from being in issues over in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and Invictus Institute is working with the medical community to treat PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and depression, and to treat the brain, not the symptoms, to really cure it. And John, how has being a veteran residence helped you? So Veteran Residence Powered by Bunker Labs has given me the opportunity to not be on an island, not be isolated. Um, you know, going back to being back to the military, you relied on your team. Even though we were taught to be autonomous and to operate independently, you still had a team below you. So when it comes to entrepreneurship, it, depending on what stage you are, you might be uh, a single-person team. You might have two, three, or four. Um, but this opportunity has really given me um, the foundation to to seek out and to rely on other veterans that are going through the same pains, to, to allow me to gain confidence and know that I'm not the only one experienced in this, that we can actually share our current war stories with each other and the frustrations and grow and leverage um, their pains, their mistakes, and implement that into to my strategic plan going forward. Hmm. And those military veterans, I understand, are 30% more likely to employ other vets. How much of your workforce is veterans? So right now, we are growing our veteran workforce. Um, my first full-time employee um, was, a, was a Marine. We did not work together. Um, we worked together overseas in a different capacity as uh, defense contractors. Um, he was, uh, like I said, first full-time employee. Um, we have three um, contractor um, individuals on the team, both veterans. Um, I'm hiring right now for three different positions for the company. At the top of the list, once again, our veterans. And this isn't me necessarily seeking them out. However, I know that their foundation can support the, the rapid growth of what I'm trying to achieve. And even on my, on my Indeed ad, you know, I explain that you're going to be wearing a multitude of different hats, that if you're coming for a specific role, that this is not a job for you, and that resonates very well in the military community. That you might have you might have one mission statement, but be prepared to execute in a variety of different capacities. And how are the vets who work for you different from other non-military employees? So, we call it fire and forget in the in the in the military community. You give one direction, and then you don't have to think about it again. So, for me, I'm not a micromanager. Um, I have teams in the field right now. We're doing a demonstration um, outside of Dallas, and you know he set his mission plan. He briefs me in the morning, and I know he's going to go and execute. And I don't have a single worry in my mind that it's not going to be executed how it's supposed to be. And then afterwards, um, you know, going back and relying on that that military training, I'm going to get an after action report, and everything's going to be, you know, delineated. It's going to be written down, and then I, you know, we move on to the next. And that is very important for me as a manager, as a CEO, and owner of a company that we have so many different things going on at any given time that I do not have the bandwidth to be concerned that that my team is not going to execute. Not saying that my non-military folks aren't doing that, but uh, this just gives me the confidence um, to to really, you know, stretch ourselves out there and, and keep on pushing. And Hark, given that some of the veterans and residents, some have served in war zones and may have injuries, do they have needs that are different from traditional employees? Uh, a lot of the I would say the differences are really more about the camaraderie and a shared sense of mission. Uh, the ability for us to bring in 10 different people who have never met before and they instantly coalesce and form a tribe where they feel safe with each other. 
I've had companies who have told me, listen, I feel I can come in here as a CEO and just, you know, kind of let it out and tell people, hey, I don't know if I'm going to make payroll next week. And they can't have those conversations with their employees, obviously. Also, the ability to share freely. They say, you know, I can tell people in this group that I'm thinking about doing something and I'm not worried about somebody stealing my idea because it's that shared sense of camaraderie and trust. Mm. And you recently met with Colorado lawmakers to talk about ways that they can support military vets in business. What's one of the things that you'd like them to do? One of the the big things is uh, specifically here in the city and county of Denver is for small business uh, set-asides or preferences for veteran-owned or military spouse-owned small businesses. Uh, the current ordinance does not have that in there specific to veteran-owned or military spouse-owned, and we'd really like to see that happen. And I understand that there's even kind of a historical component to how you got started with this, that things have changed since World War II and how people came back and got jobs. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, after World War II, approximately 50% of the veterans returning uh, became owners of of small businesses. Uh, Today, we have 200,000 people leaving active duty uh, each year about. 25% of those want to start a business, but less than 5% will. And so We Bunker Labs exists to help close that gap. Uh, that's, that's why we're here. And we really have uh, – so the, the, the program that John was involved in is really one of four that we have. Uh, the other ones we have are a launch lab online, which is for idea to invoice. In other words, I have an idea, but I don't have any customers. Is entrepreneurship right for me, and is this a real business? The mm-hmm. program John was in, the WeWork Veterans and Residents Powered by Bunker Labs, we have monthly meetups called Bunker Brews. And then for more advanced companies, we have a mastermind called CEO Circle. Thank you so much for being here. Hark Harold is regional director for Bunker Labs, a nonprofit that helps military veterans start their own businesses. Marine veteran John Chapman is founder of Liberty Dynamic in Denver. We spoke to them as a part of our ongoing series about entrepreneurship disruptors. When we come back, how the infamous String Dusters set out to make their latest album seem more like a concert experience. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR News. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was a little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use kill committee. There's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed? Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. And I'm Ryan Warner. Our next guests became Grammy winners last year when they took home the award for Best Bluegrass Album. Here's the thing, though, about winning an award for the best. How do you follow it up? That's where the infamous String Dusters found themselves after landing a Grammy for their 2017 record Laws of Gravity. Soon after, the Bluegrass Group's five members headed back into the studio, and their new album is called Rise Sun.
The founding members of the infamous String Dusters are with us. Andy Hall, who plays Dobro. Hi, Andy. Hi there. And Chris Pandolfi on banjo. Hi, Chris. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having us. You know, this new album, it feels like a live performance. The songs flow well one to the next, instrumental breaks woven throughout. I mean, it strikes me that this should be listened to as a whole, you know, like start to finish. Was that the goal? Definitely, that was part of the vision going into this thing. And a lot of that centers around trying to connect our live show, which is really the main thing that we do. You know, we play a hundred some odd shows a year and we only release an album once every two years, roughly. So we really wanted to bring all this sort of information and evolution around the live show that we've developed on the road to the album process. And, you know, the album is about songwriting and and playing and our sound as a band. But then when it comes to sequencing the record and transitions and the flow of the whole thing, we really wanted that to reflect what we do live. How do you bring that energy to the studio. I mean, just as someone who spends a lot of time in studios, they can be such dead environments. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah, that that is a known thing in the studios. It's like the studio slow. Sometimes you play slower than you would, uh, you know, or Wait, yeah. that, that, that's a thing in music, the studio slow? Studio slow is a known <laughs> term. So like, you know, you go back and you listen to your old record and maybe you've been playing it live for a year or two and you're like, oh my God, these songs are so slow. <laughs> wow. And so not only that, but yeah, just like the energy somehow is hard to get to transfer through all this technology and into the listener's ears. And so we have a great producer engineer that we've worked with on a number of albums who also helped us with uh, Laws of Gravity, a guy named Billy Hume. And he's like, that's kind of one of his fortes is helping us get that translation. So it's taken us, I think, till this record to really get a handle on that because it is something that's, you know, a challenge. It helps that there are these seamless song changes Another night. this is your ninth full-length record again rise sun is the title you've also put out several live albums and eps over the years what are you trying to say with this new record yeah, you know, that's always an interesting question when you have five different <laughs> band members bring, and it's a democracy and everyone brings songs to the table to come up with kind of a, a cohesive message. You know, we've tended towards this really uplifting kind of vibe with these songs. I mean, there's still a few, you know, sort of relationship songs, maybe things aren't going great, but a lot of the message of this record is like an uplifting kind of hopeful energy and that's just something that we shoot for that's something that makes us feel good it's something we shoot for in our own relationships you know within the band and so we end up writing about it wanting to it's like you know it's not like a self-help record but it's i mean <laughs> and it's, it's also another way that i think that it connects to the show you know the show is designed to uplift people and you know if we if we did our job people leave the show feeling that sense of community that connection to us that connection to each other and if the album worked then maybe it'll create that uh, that thing too the wind is calm the river moves in the trees leaves are new blossoms peak from underground with the hope the light will be found
I should say that the other members of the band include Travis Book on bass, Andy Falco on guitar, and Jeremy Garrett on fiddle. And just to build on what we were hearing there, all five members sing. You all share songwriting credits. You described this, Andy, as a democracy. Mm-hmm. You know, democracy can be very frenetic. Uh, does it ever turn into a dictatorship? Does it have to, to get a record done? No, it doesn't have to, uh, but it definitely requires a, an a incredible amount of compromise. And you have to be willing to let your little song babies maybe not make it onto the record or drift away or whatever. You oh, know? I so, want you each to give me an example of something you've <laughs> sacrificed. <laughs> Man, I, you know, this album actually was the first one even though there were sacrifices where we came together for our pre-production sessions and that's where we go through all the new songs and hear what everyone's been up to and what the sort of latest and greatest songs that we've written are. And we were almost entirely unified on what the best crop of songs was that represented this sort of unified vision, all these different eclectic influences that create the String Duster sound, being able to identify as a group you know, yeah, these are our best songs this time around. And so that was way too kumbaya. Come on now. (laughs) Andy, what'd you give up? Trust, I gave up, okay? I gave and I gave. No, um, yeah, actually there was a song that I liked that didn't make it on there called Another One Like You. And turns out it's made it instantly into regular rotation in the live show. So there's a place for a lot of this music, even if it doesn't uh, get on the record. Right. If you have to sacrifice in the studio, it can always be on stage. Well, let's hear a song that is on the record and that apparently there was quite a lot of agreement about. This is Planets. Listening to Colorado Matters, I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with the founding members of the bluegrass band, the infamous String Dusters. I, I want to try something a little different. We're going to do a lightning round. You guys ready? Yeah, let's hit it. Okay, just say your answers out loud. Telluride or Red Rocks? Oof. Red Rocks. Telluride. <laughs> okay, that's some political <laughs> answering. What pairs better with String Dusters music, whiskey or beer? Hmm. Say whiskey. Yeah, whiskey. I knew I liked you, too. (laughs) I just knew it. Tour bus or plane? Tour Tour bus. bus. Sure. Tell me more about that. I think that the tour bus, we, we go on tour usually for the first four months of the year, and that's just when we've got the full crew, same thing, night after night, two sets, five shows a week, and we just get tight. That's when we our art, I think, really evolves the most. And then we carry a lot of what we've been able to experiment with in that part of the year into festival season, into the big shows of the summer. But 
there's so much experimentation night after night. It's really just an exciting time to see things evolve and come to life. And only three of you live in Colorado. So it's not that the band is always together. I, I gather the road trips then are a chance to really bond. <laughs> yeah, we've been bonding well for, you know, 13 yeah. years or so. <laughs> so in case I miss the guys, we, we, you know, we take 10 days off and then get back to the touring. But yeah, three of us have all made, found our way to Colorado you know, a place that was really formative early on in the band when we were just trying to figure out what we were and what to do. Our bass player, actually, who doesn't live here now, was originally from Colorado and he had knew a few people and we would just drove out here and played a few little coffee shop type things and, and, and a house concert. And it is where we really found that like the fans like to like dance, like mm. stand up and dance. We were kind of in the in the southeast bluegrass scene and people are sitting and listening and that's great. But when we came here we found people like dancing and being really emotive and we just we, we fell in love with that vibe. I wanna get mile high, touch the sky, get lost in mountain time. So th this idea that you came, I guess, to Colorado six or seven years ago from Nashville, is it what you noticed about the music scene? Is it your love of the outdoors? Because you're really involved in the environmental movement, for instance. I mean, I know that you've partnered with groups like American Rivers and Leave No Trace. Yeah, like Andy said, Colorado was really formative in terms of helping us sort of observe the crowd response, see how that informs the music, and then let that evolution really roll. We just learned so much here in Colorado. And fast forward now, three guys living here, and it's one of the String Duster's biggest markets, and it's just become a mecca for bluegrass music. So you guys are huge in Colorado. <laughs> well, I, we're getting there, you know, getting there, but... Uh, but yeah, the, the, the outdoors was certainly also a lure. I mean, we, a bunch of us ski. We like to hike. And yeah, so we started partnering with some environmental causes pretty early on. You know, I moved to Lyons first off and within a year went through the floods that happened there and, and saw firsthand, you know, was stranded in Lyons and went through the whole deal of the flood, you know, had to evacuate and it was very scary. And and, and gosh, uh, the festival grounds there were inundated too. Yeah, exactly. To... Planet Bluegrass, which has, uh, you know, been a big help for us and we've played the festivals there a bunch. And so, you know, a lot of that hit home for us. And, and out of that, we, uh, you know, we started partnering with Candade, Oscar Blues is like philanthropic arm and did a song with actually with Bruce Hornsby to benefit the Candade related to the floods. And so we kind of, you know, got into it from a variety of ways. But, you know, it, it all felt very personal moving here and, and seeing that. Let's hear that collaboration with Bruce Hornsby. The track is called Road to Boulder. I got lost on my way home. The path is dim there once had shown like a dog looking
joined by two members of the bluegrass group, the infamous String Dusters. What's a String Duster? The name comes from Ben Eldridge, the banjo player for the legendary Seldom Scene. And um, we were consulting with him early on, and he threw the name out, and it was so hard to find a name. We had this list that still exists somewhere on paper, and everything was taken. We fished around, and at Ben's recommendation, we were the String Dusters, and then when we found out that that name was taken, we became the infamous String Dusters. Oh, there's a String Dusters. Mm-hmm. There is, yeah, somewhere out there. Have you, You've you never run across them? We never have run across them, no, but... Uh, it's going to be an ugly fight. I know, well, yeah, you know, hey, <laughs> so the, that's what makes us infamous. The know. infamous was added to differentiate yourself. Exactly. Oh, yeah. that's so funny. Yeah. What do you think a String Duster is? Someone who is a hot picker, someone who can really pick hot and dust those strings. The infamous part you got to earn, though. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that comes later. It's a badge. There is a hallmark of your shows, um, which is really fun and unexpected covers. We had a member of our staff shout out a cover that they just love from the string dusters, well, the infamous ones. Uh, let's listen and see if the audience gets it. Walking on the Moon there by Sting. With five members, do you kind of rotate which covers you're going to do? Yeah, we we really mix it up with the covers, and we try and get new things in the mix for every tour. And like you said, it's just a, a fun sort of connection point, especially for people who are less familiar with the band. You know, they say, play something I know so I can tell how good you are, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and we've just got such a wide range of influences, you know, everything from traditional bluegrass to heavy metal and everything in between. So the covers just help us, you know, put some of that on display and more than anything else, just play some of our favorite music and find sort of new and different ways to bluegrassify that stuff. And and it's just a, a fun and different addition to the show. We come too far to You're also known for your collaborations with other artists like Sam Bush, Bela Fleck, and the Grateful Dead's Phil Lesh, who you'll actually be playing with at Red Rocks. But I want to talk about your sort of side project called the Bluegrass Generals. Bluegrass Generals came about when Andy and I were both settled in Denver, and we're part of a a style of music where jamming is sort of at the center of this thing. Festivals, you know, that's where you learn music, meet other musicians, stay up all night, play music. The offstage jamming you're talking yes, about. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And um, where the whiskey goes down. And, <laughs> um, the Bluegrass Generals is just, you know, our way of taking that jam and sort of making it one step more formal and 
putting it on stage. And the concept is really bringing together great and different personalities from around the bluegrass world and then sort of playing each guy's like greatest hits. I mean, you've done collaborations with String Cheese Incident. Mm -hmm. Sam Bush. Green Sky Bluegrass. We had Paul Hoffman uh, on one. Billy Strings, great up-and-coming guitar player. John Um, Stickley. Yeah. Greg Garrison from Leftover Salmon. It strikes me that this is just a great way to keep a band that's been around for quite a few years fresh. Exactly. I mean, it's just it's an opportunity where there's not really a lot of pressure. You you bring in a, a variety of musicians to, yeah, like have a jam session on stage. And it's just, yeah, it's a great little pressure release. It's a great little just hmm. fun, interesting way to keep, yeah, like you say, keep things fresh, keep things creative. If you could bring someone back from the dead to play in the Bluegrass Generals, who would it be? Oh, man, for me, it would have to be... Earl Scruggs, and we'd have two banjos rocking throughout the show. Oh, um, great call. Yeah, and if I could pick with Earl, I mean, he's still, for banjo players everywhere, the gold standard. And, um, you know, even though he's mostly associated with traditional bluegrass, he played really progressive, you know, eclectic music for a lot of his career. And I think he'd uh, I think he'd do a general's gig justice. Mm-hmm. Okay, Andy? John Hartford maybe would be cool, oh, you know. John Hartford, he's you know the the amazing, unique songwriter, banjo player, fiddle player who really stretched the the bounds of bluegrass, especially with his content and his lyrics. They're just these poetic, funny, comedic, artistic poetry, really. One of the original real bluegrass hippies, and so I feel like he would be a perfect general. I have to say that these folks feel so influential on you both that it sounds like you play with them on stage to some extent anyway. Yeah, that's, of, a, that's great. I love I love to hear that. That's a great way to think about it. I mean, you. they certainly have influenced us heavily and we we play their songs and we, yeah, listen to them and all that stuff totally informs who you are as a musician and certainly their music lives on through us and whatever as best we know how to do it. Gentlemen, thanks for being with us. Thank you so, thanks so much, much for having us. Map says my way takes too long. But I want to get there late. my friends telling me I'm wrong. Andy Hall and Chris Pandolfi of the infamous String Dusters speak with my colleague Ryan Warner last month about the release of the band's new album, Rise Sun. Catch them at Red Rocks next Wednesday, May 29th, as they open for Phil Lesh and the Terrapin Family Band. Denver Justice High School is celebrating its 10th anniversary as a school of second chances. CPR Max Wysick Newsfellow Joella Bauman takes us there. When T.J. Cole worked as a magistrate in the Boulder Juvenile Justice System, he saw kids who needed help, and not just for their encounters with the law. I was seeing uh, an increased number of kids that weren't going to school. Kids who have significant issues were getting expelled and never going back. I had the wild idea, well, we'll start our own program for the kids who are in our system. He started the original Justice High School in 2002. It's an alternative charter school designed for students whose lives didn't mesh well with the traditional schedules and timetables for graduation. That served kids who Cole was seeing in his courtroom, 
It turned out it was a good place for kids dealing with other kinds of struggles as well. They were in the juvenile delinquency system or in and out of rehabs. Some of the kids were homeless. Some of the kids were pregnant and have to be gone for a period of time. Cole was approached to spearhead a version of the school in Denver, and it launched in 2009. Daniel Hudley, the earth science teacher, has taught since the beginning. She says things run a little differently here. For one thing, there's only about 100 students, and that means they get to work with each of them individually, and the schedule is more accommodating. At a traditional high school, there's two semesters which you can earn grades with, right? Um, With us, we are on four nine-week quarters, so that means six classes that they're getting credit for every quarter. That way, students whose lives take detours away from school can make up for lost time. Some students are able to earn a year's worth of credit in half the time if they work hard. Sofan Keth is a 20-year-old student who received her diploma this month. Keth says she got on the wrong track at another school when a boy there became obsessed with her. She went to her friends for help. Keth says she just wanted to confront him, but her friends had other ideas. I was still hanging out with the wrong crowd, hanging out with gangbangers. They wanted to do extra things, and from there... That's when I had got arrested. Kath was charged with conspiracy to commit aggravated robbery with a firearm. After spending time in jail, she was out of school for months trying to find a place that would take her. Denver Justice did. Kath said the school feels like family. It's totally different. I just felt like I wasn't alone that I did some bad things that I regret because there's a few kids that did something bad and still wants to go back to school. Stephen Parse is the school's principal. He says their philosophy is not to turn anyone away. For some students, they just need one chance to get on track and moving forward for happiness um, and success. For some students, it's really our continued effort to revisit and work with a student to help them be successful. All of the students I spoke with did struggle at traditional schools in some way. Some got in trouble, others grew up in abusive homes, some had mental health issues and weren't going to school. We would smoke weed and and I got a ticket for for disturbing the peace as I had my okay. I'm probably never gonna graduate. Like I had zero credits even after like passing classes, like I still couldn't catch up as much as I tried. Crazy. As much as um, I tried. My mom, she kinda got on drugs really, really bad, and so did my stepdad. Well, my stepdad's now facing life in prison. So, um, Started ditching school, leaving when I wanted to, and I'm doing the right thing. That was Maxwell Thomas, and before him, Jenna Kenley, Kimberly Tobias, and Abel Aguilar. However, that hasn't stopped them from being successful at justice. Once the students realize that they can catch up and they will get individualized support from teachers and staff, Hudley says they quickly begin to succeed. I hate that they, you know, what they've been told educationally, and to see that turn around when they come here. That oh, you know, what, I'm not that label that I've been labeled this whole time. I can learn. I am smart. And when students get that message, they also get a vision for their futures. Here are those students we heard from earlier. Yeah, I want to do nuclear engineering. I am planning to become a mechanical engineer. I really want to be a pediatrician. I want to own a restaurant. This isn't to say the school works for everyone, however hard the staff tries. Principal Stephen Parr says their graduation rate is much lower than average for DPS. We're not a perfect school, not a magic school. I have no Harry Potter wand. I wish we were better. I wish we were perfect. But Parr says of the Denver Justice students who graduate and choose to continue their education after high school, 
100% are accepted into a college or program. I'm Joella Bauman, CPR News. That's Colorado Matters on this Friday. I'm Avery Lill. Thanks for joining us.